Tuesday, ladies and gentlemen. Well, we have Christmas week is upon us. So the roads are packed with people out there getting those last minute gifts. And if that's you, get on it because you should be all done by now. All right. So this is episode number 188 of Shut Up and Grind with your host, yours truly, Robert B. Foster. So if you are new to the show, we're all about overcoming obstacles, about defying the odds and helping you clear the path of any obstacles, any roadblocks that are keeping you from doing what you are, what you are called um, to, to do on this earth. I, I completely botched that sentence, <laughs> but you know what I mean. All right, so if you're joining me on YouTube, please subscribe to the channel. Please like the video. If you're joining me on Facebook, please like and share the video to help spread the word because I bring guests on from all over the world just to give you a different lens, you know, a different voice to hear from about how they manage to navigate life and maybe it'll inspire you to take action on the things that you want to do. And if you have no clue who I am, this minute 18 will clear it up for you. I started doing workshops and doing groups where I'm getting up in front of of others, like outside of the gym setting and talking about resilience and perseverance and goal setting and vision and taking action. You should know what one hour of your time is worth. You should know the value that you bring to the marketplace. You know what your passion is. starts with clarity of vision. If you don't have the clarity of vision, whatever next thing you get, you're not going to see it through because you don't have the clarity of vision. So the, the point of my pain was being told you will never run or jump again. And all that stuff, I was like, you know what? Like, I want to be able to take this even bigger. If you know why you do what you do, you have to know how to charge for what you do. That's how you're going to change your life, and that's how you're going to leave a legacy for your children and your family. you got to know your work. All right, so for today's teachable moment, with this being the week of Christmas, is just remember what the season is about. It's not about getting the biggest gifts, the most lavish gifts, and or you know just having having a big gargantuan tree and like all that stuff is the is the commercialized, materialized side of the holiday. So taking the re- religious aspect, I don't want to take the religious aspect out of it because the religious aspect started this, but it's about giving. Right? So it's about giving. It's not about getting. It's about giving. And give as much as you possibly can because in turn, you're going to end up getting back everything that you want. You know, I say it on this show all the time. If you chase money, like you might catch it, but if you're not fulfilled in doing that thing that makes you the money, like, is it really a success though? Because that's what, one of the questions I ask people all the time is, are you happy? And people can't give a straight answer. It's like, just because you have money in the house and the car and you travel, but are you actually living in your purpose? And when you when you go about life with a giving heart, you're automatically going to step into what your purpose is. You don't have to find it. It'll reveal itself to you. So that's today's Teachable Moment. So today I have my second nuclear engineer this month. Who would have thought? How many other podcast hosts can say that? 
that don't talk to engineers specifically. <laughs> All right, so going through this man's background, he's got he's got a whole lot of stuff going on here, and I don't even know how to summarize it. So we're just going to bring him in and let him explain to us what it is he does and why he does it. So welcome Noah Healy to the show. Morning. Uh, morning, Robert. Uh, <laughs> thanks for having me. My pleasure. Thanks for taking the time to share your knowledge and your experience with myself and the audience. I'm sure I'm going to learn a whole lot today. So thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> All right. So where are you joining us from? I'm in Charlottesville, Virginia. Charlottesville, Virginia. All right. So what was it like going through all, through all that buzz when Trump was there? That was unpleasant. Um, I bet. Uh, effectively, uh, what was uh, a local issue became a flashpoint for other people to, to come together and grind their axes uh, and then spill blood in our town, which yeah. that that was no fun at all. Uh, and it's, we're, we're still, we're still coping with it. Uh, actually the, there's civil suits happening through the courts these days. Um, and the leadership, uh, heavily mishandled things. So, uh, our, our political and police establishments have been completely destabilized. Uh, the, it's it's not clear who's running the city anymore. Actually, um, yeah. we had a we're a we're a manager city, and so the the city manager and the mayor of that time both left. We got another city manager. He actually just quit about a month ago. Um, the uh, the interim guy that came in at the the beginning of December um, said his his first job is to figure out why nobody's sticking around and why why we can't sort of like have a functioning government and the city spokesman uh quit like later that same day uh it feels like so and he'd, he'd been there for i don't know 30 years and wow. and he just he just like runs council meetings like he's it's not <laughs> i don't know i don't know what was going on there but something uh the the new mayor we got in, uh, a police chief was a friend of hers. Um, she was fired and is now suing the city for millions of dollars. And Jeez. it's not clear who, like there's an interim in, but like who the new chief of police is going to be. Yeah. It's, it's been, it's wow. been a, a, a hard, hard <laughs> road. Yeah. Once the, once the mainstream media gets involved, it just, it just makes everything because, because you know the two main players have two completely different lenses and agendas. So, sure. So you're right. going to take the same incident, but you're going to see it two different ways. You know, multiple di different ways, and then that hurts the residents of Charlottesville. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. All right. So let's dive in. So through the lens of your best friend, how would they describe you? Smart, but out there is usually how he puts it. <laughs> All right, go into more, to more detail. What does that mean? Um, well, I'm, I'm a math guy, uh, and, and I tend to reduce problems to, to math problems and then 
think them through logically from there. And as a result, uh, I usually don't come up with solutions that are even remotely similar to the ones that, that other people come up with. Uh, and that's, that's true in kind of my personal and social life, but it's, it's even true, you know, in sort of my academic career. Uh, I, I have multiple stories of, uh, you know, solving actually math problems in ways that, that teachers have never seen before, um, uh, that are, they're equally efficient. Um, usually sometimes I'm more efficient, very occasionally I'm less efficient than the, than the usual way to do things. Um, but, uh, it's always, it's always very different. Um, I, I remember in my digital logic design class in college, uh, we had to wire up a, a self-sustaining circuit. Um, and the normal way to do it, I think was with NAND gates and I wired it up with NOR gates, which uses the same number of gates, but, uh, the wires essentially are all backwards, uh, because the logic is, is, uh, it's called dual. It's, it's basically, a a corresponding second way of doing things. Um, and, and it was just, it was the first thing that it occurred to me to do it that way. I thought that was more natural. Um, and I made a wiring mistake. And so I brought the TA over to help me kind of debug my, my breadboard. And he looked at it and he was like, what, like I've never seen this before because you know, the wires are all backwards. It would be like if, if somebody showed you print that was backwards, it's like, sure you could read it, but like your first impression would be, this is Martian. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, uh, but you know, like we saw what it was and, and, you know, moved the wire over and the thing started working and, and he was scratching his head for 10 minutes because it's like, how could this possibly work? And then once you kind of work through and realize yeah. uh, what's going on, it's like, oh, of course, yeah, sure. You just did it the way nobody ever does it. So <laughs> outside the box thinking. All right. So let's see where that stems from. So what what did what did your parents do for work or what do your parents do for work? Um, well, at the time I was born, uh, my dad was a, a contractor. Uh, and my mom was a waitress. Um, through the course of my life, uh, they divorced and remarried. Um, and uh, so my parents, um, my dad went from being a contractor to uh, a tile salesman, and he's now retired. Uh, my mom went from being a waitress to being a nurse, and she's now retired. Okay. Um, and my step parents went from accountant to a uh, school teacher. Uh, and the other one was a computer programmer, uh, in educational software, but they're all retired now. So, um, so how, how would you describe yourself as a child? Uh, a, a loner. Um, I, uh, I spent a lot of time alone. I'm the oldest of six children. Um, so there were, there were other kids around, uh, even after I stopped being one. Uh, but Charlottesville, when I was raised was, was, uh, it's still a small town. Um, although it's trying to now to become a city, 
but when I was when I was a kid, it was really a small town. Yeah. Uh, my across the street from our front yard was a I don't know twenty or thirty acre uh, pine forest, uh, and behind was a tangle of uh, bamboo and and blackberries and and other stuff that went on all the way to the city line more or less uh and everywhere outside of town was a farm these days we've got sort of a metro charlottesville area and there's about a hundred thousand people attached to the city there's still only about forty thousand in the city but uh but yeah, um, it was a lot more open spaces uh, and and uh, creeks and and hills and stuff. And and I spent my time either there or reading. Um, I came really into uh, science fiction, some fantasy. Okay, All right. And when did you develop your love for math? Pretty much right away. Um, uh, it, it wasn't a massive feature. Uh, reading was sort of my first academic pursuit. The first book I can remember reading to myself was Treasure Island. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that was before I started school. Uh, and the thing that kind of knocked me off reading actually was uh, Robinson Crusoe. God, that's boring. It's <laughs> it's just really dull. <laughs> Everything takes an infinite amount of effort, and then something else takes an infinite amount of effort. After the last thing that took an infinite amount of effort, and I was like, "Well, which is it? <laughs> What's going on here? Like, don't you have any descriptive terms?" <laughs> um, so yeah, I kind of I kind of bounced out from there. But uh, you know, sort of the first first thing they give kids on counting. I was good at that. Uh, I was good at, at adding. Um, my dad sort of accidentally taught me algebra, um, showing me how to do my homework. Uh, and then he didn't really have to show me how to do my homework anymore because uh, I, I knew algebra. And that wasn't the class until seven years later. So uh, so you said you, you were reading before you got to school? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think lots of people pick up basic reading before you get to school. I mean, you know, the, the, you read Dr. Seuss to your kids and by the time they're three, maybe they can't read Dr. Seuss, but they've memorized it. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, okay, they, they, they can, they can say all the words of cat in the hat to the, yeah. to the pages that they're on. Yeah. Um, and a lot of them, a lot of, I did, uh, will pick up and, and reading is fun. Uh, you know, get, get the good stuff, you know, don't, don't expose your children to Defoe <laughs> would, would be my advice. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, the, the tale of Jim Harker on, on, uh, halfway around the world to look for pirate treasure what little boy doesn't want to know about that? True, fair enough. Or Hawkins, Jim Hawkins—that's his name. Um, so yeah, I, 
I didn't read it quickly. I think I read it over the course of about three months. Um, and and juvenile fantasy literature is actually one of my interests, even to this day. I, I collect that. Um, I got my uh, I got my siblings into Harry Potter when that happened, uh, and that was cool because a lot of the the really good stuff got reprinted. Uh, as, as publishers were like, hey, juvenile fantasy literature sells. We've got a ton of that in our back catalog. Um, so, yeah, I was able to get uh, copies of some of those that, that I had read, but, but had, you know, had sort of fallen out of print or become harder to find uh, as a result of, of that thing. As a, as a child, what did you see yourself doing for a career? I never did, actually. Uh, you know, sort of. It's a it, it's a common fantasy for everybody to think about what they want to do when they grow up. Uh, and like I said, I I don't seem to have common fantasies, so uh, it it kind of never occurred to me uh, that 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 transition would happen. What what sort of happened? Um, I'm old enough that the testing tradition was, was very strong, uh, with things like aptitude tests and IQ tests in school. Um, so I think like sixth or seventh grade, somewhere around there, uh, they gave us the Iowa aptitude test. Um, and you know, you get your results back. So I was 12 and it was like, yeah, you want to be an analyst. Like that's what this says. Um, so I was like, Oh, okay, I guess. Uh, and then sort of went on with, with my life. Uh, my kind of next dip in was in high school. Uh, I was an accelerated math student. And so I was sent to the university to continue my math classes. Uh, and in my junior year, uh, there were there was an acceleration program that was formed because a bunch of children and professors of the UVA math department were all the same age, one year older than me. And their fathers had basically lobbied to get them a special accelerated class, which I was also qualified for. So I also went to. Um, so I, I basically did a year at the math department with all of them in sort of their senior year, my junior year. Yeah. Uh, but then sliding into my senior year, uh, engineering looked like a good thing. So I, I took classes in the engineering department instead. Uh, wait, wait, hold on. Okay. What do you mean engineering looked like a good thing? Like what appealed to you about it? Um, just the, the classes, the classes in the math department were, uh, I don't even know how to put it. Just impractical. Um, the one of the teachers uh, during lecture would just make stuff up at the board. Uh, it was like, let's put some random function here. He that that was that was his catchphrase basically. Yeah. Um, and so he'd write something up and then start doing the process and. If the process got complicated, he'd, he'd be like, oh, yeah, this this is hard. And then he'd erase it 
and then you write something else down. <laughs> it's like, well, the process is supposed to like work or make things easy. Like, why, why, <laughs> what, what are you doing? <laughs> um, so I, I figured engineering might have a little bit more rigor is the wrong word in mathematics, but, but, uh, uh, well, not exactly challenges because it was definitely challenging to sort of figure out what was going on, but, but just sort of some sort of connection that I could get my, my hands on. Um, and so then, uh, time came to go to college. I went to UVA. Uh, they're very understanding about accepting their own classes as credits. Uh, they, they couldn't stop me from doing that. And uh, I went into engineering because I've, I've never been much of a writer. And I figured I'd have to write less in engineering. That turned out to be an error. Uh, you, have to, you have to write a senior thesis to graduate as an engineer. And I would have been able to graduate without a senior thesis in the college if I'd wanted to. Uh, so, uh, got into engineering, um, and just sort of wandered around taking classes. I, I basically take, uh, an introductory class, an intermediate class and a graduate class in every department they had. Uh, and in nuclear engineering, um, in the intermediate class, uh, class called, uh, reactor safety, um, the professor brought up this physical phenomenon called delayed neutrons and claimed that if this phenomenon didn't happen, wasn't a natural part of the universe, then mankind would never have been able to commercially exploit nuclear power because everything would be a bomb. Okay. Um, and, and so I'm assuming that fascinated you. Well, you know, when you tell a, a room of engineers or proto-engineers that something's impossible, you need to be prepared for pushback. And he was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so we spent about 15 minutes. Hey, what about this? What about that? You know, and he batted us down easily. Uh, and then he spent the rest of the hour talking about I don't know what, because I spent the rest of the hour designing this science fiction, you know, reactor that, that used gamma ray lasers to, to, to function and uh, probably, turn yourself into the Hulk. Well, <laughs> not, no. Um, but yeah, yeah, might, it might actually have been able to work in this theoretical universe that doesn't have delayed neutrons. And, uh, and so after class was over, I came up and was like, hey, what about this? Uh, and he said, you should write your senior thesis on that. Um, and introduced me to my thesis advisor who said that, you know, well, it would be silly to write my senior thesis about science fiction. My idea actually did have some similarities to this other reactor design called an energy amplifier, which does use a particle accelerator to drive a nuclear reactor. And that he had a PhD student that was working on modeling such a system and that, uh, we could easily find a senior thesis level subject around what that PhD student was doing. Um, 
that that could meet my needs. And so I was like, okay, sure. Can, and, I, just, can, I, can I just pause, pause for a second and just tell you how, how, on the listener end how hysterical it is with all the big <laughs> words you just used, and then you backed it up with senior thesis <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh, all right. I'm sorry. Continue. <laughs> I yeah. To point that out. <laughs> so, so yeah, that was that was it. That 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 became my my senior thesis. It was a a method of manipulating a computer program model to extract uh, a mathematical model uh, that you could then play around with. Uh, using a technique called autocorrelation. So it's pretty heavily math-based and and kind of signals processing. Then, uh, so then he he had a a fellowship. So I did a year of graduate school in the nuclear program and took a bunch of interesting classes and then got out and started programming computers for a living. So you said you, so from, from there you, you started computer programming? Well, yeah, I, I was out of school and needed something to do and didn't really have any plans for what to do as usual. Uh, <laughs> I had, I had been uh, the president of the games club at UVA, uh, which has people from town entering into it. And we were one of the first places in the United States that started playing Settlers of Catan, which is a a fairly popular board game that was developed in the nineties in Germany. Um, And actually there was a company in Charlottesville was the first people that did the U S distribution. Our games club became one of the strongest communities in the country. Um, I think, something like four or five of the first five or six national champions were members of our games club. Uh, And I was the best settlers player in our club. And this guy was the CTO of, of a dot-com startup and he was a huge settlers fan. And so by the time I graduated, he had been losing games to me a couple times a week for a few years and was like, you're smart. We're hiring. Come on down. So uh, that's what happened. Um, and so I started, I, I learned programming. Uh, I'd done a little bit uh, in my academic career, but it had never really sparked my interest. Most programming was about uh, games or or like special effects, computer image stuff, uh, which I didn't really care about all that much. Uh, But I got into it uh, and started learning the, the underlying mathematics. And that is really fascinating and important work. uh, And also very recent work. Um, uh, Computational mathematics, we can now trace it to the late 1800s um, with some very faint whiffs uh, uh, of the early 1800s, late 1700s, um, but but the sort of foundational stuff is is the early 1800s. But the the really seminal work and the important stuff that that underlies 
detect that we actually use uh, on a regular basis is like the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Um, so, you know, not not even one full human lifetime ago, uh, really, in some cases. Um, and uh, and so that that was that was really fascinating and it's that that working in that area has been uh a pretty lucrative thing to do um i when i when i need when i need work and money i dip in and do some of that uh but it's also been a very fascinating thing thinking about mathematics has has always been sort of interesting um but computational mathematics is the most complex and in some sense the simplest most complex thing that that human beings can 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 really get to grips with um give, give me an example well so there's something called the church turing thesis uh which says that all computational systems are formally equivalent that that is that there's nothing any one, there's no number or process that any one system could compute that any other system couldn't compute. Um, and so what that means is that the, you know, like a laptop or a cell phone, the very complicated technology that's involved there is essentially just capacity. There's nothing in that that's anywhere beyond the, the basics of computation. And there are computational systems that you can write down on half a page. So there are, there are things that are so simple that you could describe a game. Um, there's a guy named Raymond Smullyan who created this uh, story about songbirds. So the birds would sing songs. And when a bird heard one bird's song, it would sing a given song based on what, what song it heard. And then the mockingbird, the mockingbird sings, when it hears any given bird song, it sings the song that that bird would sing when it hears its own song. Okay. And with just three of these birds, it's possible to create a complete computational system. Well, three kinds of these birds. So you'd have to sort of set up lines of, of large numbers of these, but uh, uh, with just three of these kinds of, of things, um, it would be possible to create this laptop, you know, functionally equivalent. Uh, and so those kinds of things are, are very interesting. I, I had one, there's, this concept in computation called a quine, that's a program that produces itself as its own output, which sounds complicated, but I came up with one in English. Uh, what would you say if you repeated the phrase? What would you say if you repeated the phrase? This question is its own answer. Yes. Um, and so those kinds of things are on the one hand, you know, that's very simple. You could, you could ask, a, a four or five year old that question and get the right answer back out of them. Um, but on the other hand, they are, 
they're intimately conceptually connected to this space that that literally fills the imagination. Um, what Alan Turing did was imagine a system that was capable of anything that was imaginable. And then he proved that there were things that that system couldn't do. Uh, so, you know, there you go. There's, there's limits to imagination, but you can't imagine what they are because those are the things that are beyond the limits of your imagination. <laughs> and it just kind of recursively keeps, keeps, you know, going around. Um, so, so you're more on the design side? Uh, yeah, yeah. I was I was talking to somebody a little while ago. Uh, I I can kind of play a computer programmer on TV. I'm I I'm good enough with the algorithms and sort of the deep understanding stuff that I can build systems that work quite well. Even though I'm not really all that great at writing, and so I don't I don't produce a uh, uh, code all that quickly, uh, okay. but I can I can kind of get the job done because I can produce the right kind of code, sort of the first first off, uh, okay. which most people most people take a few few whacks of the axe before they figure out where where they're supposed to be hitting the tree. <laughs> That's so true. I love your analogies. All right. So, when did you decide to start your own business? Um. So it, it was kind of organic. Um, I had been working for a company uh, that had no career opportunities. Um, that, was, that was their words, not mine. Um, and I had, I had completed sort of everything that was possible uh, within the role that I'd been hired for. Um, the system that that they hired me to work on was fully automated. And well, I could have stuck around and administered it and drawn a paycheck. Uh, that was, that wasn't interesting. So, and I had money in the bank. So I was like, okay, well, you know, bye. And <laughs> good luck. And they were fine. And, uh, and so I did some traveling, um, spent time with family. Uh, I've got a lot of cousins scattered all over the world uh, and really wanted to take time, not so much to start a business, but to, to just really have some time to think about uh, computational math and see if I could think of anything that was new and interesting and, and maybe even important, but probably not. Uh, so that's that's what I was doing, uh, and I I found this approach to solving a class of problems that was interesting, um, and I call these I call these things negotiation games. And All right, let let me pause you real, real quick. Let me let me write that down. Negotiation games, so you can pick back up with yeah. Left off. So when I had. When I had the um, when I had the woman on, who is also a nuclear engineer, she she said something very similar to what you were saying. Though she was in the field, and she was she was successful, but 
it, it, it didn't fully, fully light our soul on fire, kind of how I was saying in my opening speech. You know, it's like, is that really a success? Like, if you're making the money and, you know, if you're not truly happy. And so she said that she wanted to take the principles of engineering and combine them with business. And then that's how she came up with her her business model. And just as I'm listening to you talk, it sounds like you're kind of leading down that same direction. Is that something that's similar in that, that path for a lot of the, people? Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think it definitely is. Um, there's been an evolution in not just engineering, professionalism in general over the last century yeah. um, that that I think has been very damaging to society in general. Um, there's a, I can't remember the title of the book. There's, there's a book about the guy that um, basically built the, the railroads in South America, which South America isn't heavily railroaded, but um, this guy was effectively given a billion dollars and sent into the Andes to get copper out of it. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, and, and if you want to pull all the copper out of South America, like you can't just be picking up rocks. You, you need all the infrastructure, all the rest of the stuff. Um, you know, the Panama Canal, our, our attempt to dig it wasn't the first time somebody had tried to dig it. And lots of people, you know, had kind of looked at a map and been like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> the Atlantic and the Pacific are very valuable. And this little strip of land is the only thing that separates them. Um, but you get down on the ground in a malarial swamp and suddenly the world's a very big place. Um, and building a railroad track through where you were going to put the line for logistical support turns out to be a, a very necessary part of the right answer. Um, so in, in the early days of engineering, the, the sort of separation of business management from engineering was, was non-existent. Um, and in the medical profession, for example, they have to some extent maintained this so that hospitals can't be run by non-doctors because, because only doctors are, are sort of ethically empowered to, to make medically important decisions. Now the medicine has gotten into a weird place and they're not really doing that, that well anymore. Um, for for all sorts of very bad reasons uh and the law also has has sort of trampled upon itself and and lawyers have have in many cases abandoned uh the the core of their their service uh but engineers might even be the worst um because engineers do not in fact insist that only engineers can make engineering decisions and we live with roads and buildings and all sorts of things that are that are put up in all sorts of bad ways uh one example i like um fukushima uh i can't remember the name of it and nobody can because it wasn't a story but 
a little bit further down the coast from Fukushima was another nuclear power plant that was based on exactly the same design as Fukushima. And the reason you've never heard of this plant wasn't because the wave didn't hit. It's because the site engineer on that project didn't accept the code. So Japan had a code basically based around the concept that uh, Richter 9 earthquakes were impossible. And so the seawall had to be, you know, this high. Uh, and there's a quote from him, um, apologies to those who are offended, but bureaucrats are cockroaches. And, and he insisted on the wall, you know, being, being a few feet higher uh, because, you know, he, he, he was unwilling to accept that Richter, you know, the, the world's a crazy place. I don't know how bad things can get. Uh, you know, you can put, you can put an extra meter on the wall or you can hire a different engineer. Um, and, and so they did, they put, and it costs money, uh, but you've never heard of this place because the water came up and it went back down and nothing happened. Um, and, uh, yeah, that, that's pretty important. Uh, and it's, it's a frustration in, uh, I think especially in software, because software doesn't really have professional departments or even a conception of what ethics would look like, which is its own sort of brand of hard problems. Um, and so you wind up in a lot of situations where business people make decisions which definitely might look good to them and and frequently work out. I mean, all businesses don't fail, uh, but but in many cases are very stupid and and uh, are essentially just taking advantage of, of sort of the competition. You know, if, if everybody in the Olympics ran the hundred meters uh, by scooching along on their butt, then, <laughs> then a toddler could win a gold medal by just standing up. That's a great example. <laughs> but, but as long as nobody does that. <laughs> See, my father, he was, he was an engineer. He, he passed a couple of years ago, but he was an engineer. And he just, he just did things different, just different. Remember when, when, he, when he was sick two years ago, he had, he had my daughter and I come down to help him, to help him replace a TV stand that he had put in the wall. Noah, when I tell you this TV stand could have held probably three tons. <laughs> he had this thing so ingrained into the wall where like with my TV stand in, in my room, I, I hit hit a button, it comes out and I can pull it right out of the drywall. No problem. He had this thing so heavily anchored into this wall. And I was like, dad, the TV weighs maybe 10 pounds. <laughs> and he's right. like, oh, you know, I, I had to make sure I did it. Was, you know, he just went into break, breaking things down. But that's how his mind worked. Like anything that he could build, he just built it. I, I remember as a little kid, I'd be with him in Home Depot. I think my mother wanted a rototiller for her garden. And he he's looking at it, looking at it up and down. Took out, we had Polaroids back, back then. He took take out his Polaroid camera, takes a picture of it. Three days later, he built one. <laughs> you know? And so I totally get that. You know, we go into places and he's constantly looking at the structure of how things were put together. Is oh well, why did they do this? They should have did this, this, and this, and they would have got this out of it. So 
I, yeah. I totally understand that that way of thinking. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so then that's that's kind of uh, what what wound up happening to me. So, I was working on problems having to do with communicating information, and in particular, communicating consensuses of information. Um, so. You've got a bunch of signals. Uh, you've got sensors. You know, people in different places giving you information, getting feedback, trying to make sense out of it in a in a reasonable way. Um, and there's actually there's a there's a kind there's a class of problems that's that's known that's similar to what I was thinking about uh, called the Byzantine generals problem. Um, so the Byzantine generals problem is that uh, there's, you are a Byzantine general there. You're sort of in the Hills. There's an army that's down in the Valley below you. Um, there's some other number and that's a free parameter. So, you know, there's a version of the problem where there's one other, two others, 50 others, whatever other generals that have armies in the Hills. Um, but you're Byzantine generals, so some of you are traitors, probably. And you don't have walkie-talkies, you've got runners. So you can send runners to other people, but the runners might get caught. So, and, and you know, or might get killed. So your messages have some probability of being intercepted and go to the enemy unintentionally. Also, the people you're talking to might be trying to coordinate with you and might be trying to coordinate with the enemy. And there's some threshold. So maybe it's all of you, maybe half of you, maybe just two of you. If you attack at the same time, then you'll overwhelm the enemy and you'll win. But if you, if the attack happens and you're under the threshold, then you'll lose. So what, the communication strategy you should use to coordinate an attack that will work that has the highest chance of success. And one of the things that's amazing about sort of information theory is we actually know the answer to that question. It's, it's complicated, but there's, if you plug in those parameters, like, you know, there's 10 other people and this is the probability that they're traitors. And this is the probability that I can talk to him. And then here's the, you know, for each of them, this is the probability that I can get a message through successfully. Um, there's there's an algorithm that would take that, turn the crank, and say, okay, these are the messages you should send on sort of this strategy, sending messages back and forth and figuring out and get together and choose and go. And if you, for lots and lots of parameters, the answer is, you know, you're screwed basically like if <laughs> if 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 there's like a 50% chance that people are traitors and there's 100 generals and you need 90 of them to to coordinate it's never going to happen yeah <laughs> um but but if it is possible uh even barely possible there's an algorithm that will tell you the best way to do it um so is this similar to like the facebook and Instagram and YouTube algorithms. Like if I go visit a website 
And then, then I, I log on to Facebook and now I, I got all these different ads pointed into the website I just went to or something in that in that field. There are aspects of that. So it's it's more similar um, to the part of our algorithm that sort of is what you are valuing. So like Google, for example, you go to Google and you're like, I have a question. And they're like, well, here's 50 answers. Um, and you keep coming back because they're 50 fairly decent answers a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, however, because of Google's business model and because of how humans work, um, they can't tell you how they're deciding what the 50 good answers are. And they've had problems where, you know, everyone knows that there's actually a best answer, but you know, their algorithm is screwed up and they just won't ever show it to anybody. Um, or or other problems where they sort of very creepily are listening to your cell phone to figure out what to tell you about later and things like that, which is also bad. Yeah. But the major issue is that they can't tell people what their algorithms are because then people could sort of back-propagate that and work backwards and come up with stuff that isn't answers that would win and make the algorithm not work anymore. Gotcha. So you get this fundamental problem where you're trusting these things, which cannot be verified because if you verified them, then they'd break and then you couldn't trust them anymore. Um, so I was thinking about is, are there approaches where you could, you could know what the algorithm is because I, I find this fundamentally creepy that I, you know, sort of have to trust a faceless monolithic multinational corporation to tell me where, you know, what I, what I look up a lot of, of mathematical theorems. It shouldn't be that hard to find those. I can't do it. I have to go ask uh, DuckDuckGo what they think. Um, so, so is there is there a way past that? Is can it only be opaque, where you have to blindly trust some random strangers who probably don't have your best interests at heart, uh, or is there a way past that? Uh, and what I figured out is that in many cases there is a way past it. Um, and that's where these negotiation games to come back to that point, that's where that comes from. Yeah. Um, so a negotiation game, game theory is a, a big complicated subject. Um, but that's because it's about a big complicated set of circumstances. It's, it's about how agents can interact with each other. And so one of the, the, earliest things that sort of got published out of game theory are these little name strategic situations, um, which approximately come up in day-to-day -day life pretty frequently. Uh, the most famous of these is the prisoner's dilemma. Um, uh, so you have a situation where you've caught a couple of robbers, you know they did it, but you'd, you, you'd like to get the confession. So you put them in separate rooms and each one of them can either turn in the other person or stay quiet. Um, and if they both stay quiet, they'll do a little bit of time, but 
not very much. But if one of them betrays the other one, then the betrayer goes free and the other one does a ton of time. But if they both betray the other one, then they both do a fair amount of time. Um, so it's, it's always in your interest to betray the other person in this game. Um, but the worst outcome so, sort of is the one where you both betray each other. Uh, and this brings up something called evolutionary game theory uh, and iterative game theory, where if you play a game over and over again, the ideal strategy actually shifts. So if you're in a single instance prisoner dilemma, you should betray the other person because you're always better off doing that. Yeah. But if you're, if there's going to be a tomorrow, if, if something might come back at you, then, then you should wait cooperativeness more heavily um, because, because cooperating is going to get you a better outcome uh, in general in the long run. Um, and so there's strategies called tough but fair for dealing with prisoner's dilemma, but that's not the only sort of tiny strategic situation that exists. Um, there's chicken where sort of if both people are selfish, they kill each other. Um, if one person's selfish and the other one isn't, then the selfish person wins. And if neither person is selfish, then they both lose because yeah. they both sort of were cowards. Um, there's uh, the stag hunt where you're either going to catch rabbits or deer. Um, and if you try to catch a rabbit, you catch a rabbit and you eat for a day. But if you try to catch a steer, uh, deer and the other person also tries to catch a deer, then you then you succeed and you both get to eat for a week. So you're better off sort of working at a higher cooperative level, but that can be undermined because there's always this sort of lower level that people can, can fall back to. Um, this is going to seem like, like a random question, but do, do you like Survivor? Uh, the the te television show? Yeah. I've never seen an episode. No kidding. Because just the way I'm listening to you, because like I'm a fan, I just watched the finale the other day, and just listening to you, it sounds really like the game of Survivor. Because there's so much probability, strategic relationships. At, at some point, you're going to have to betray your your alliance. So, right, so, right. Yeah, well, I'd, I'd imagine uh, if the Survivor writers have a brain in their heads, and they've been around for a while, they probably do. Uh, they would be aware of these things and be exploiting them to sort of maximum effect. Yeah. Uh, so the stag hunt, uh, the you know deer rabbit hunting, that's something that's called a coordination game. Um, a coordination game is characterized by deviation from the norm harming the person doing the deviating. It can also harm the, the norm as well. Uh, a, a fairly classic coordination game that sort of everybody plays every day is what side of the street do you drive on? Um, it's a really good idea that everybody agrees on that one. <laughs> Very true. You get that one drunk person at midnight. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's, that's, that's no good for everybody. Um, <laughs> But coordination games can also have that sort of prisoner's dilemma psychotic character. And there's a named one of those too. It's called Battle of the Sexes. Um, and so this posits a guy and a gal who are going to go out for date night, but 
they're independently leaving to go to the venue that they're going to go to, and they haven't decided what the venue is going to be. They're going to go to the ball game or the opera. <laughs> the guy would like to be at the ball game with the girl. He'd prefer being at the opera with the girl to being at the ball game by himself, but he really doesn't want to be the opera by himself. And the girl feels the same way. She'd rather be with the guy than by herself, but she'd rather be at the opera than at the ball game. Yeah. Um, and so this leads to all sorts of, you know, O. Henry-ish type outcomes. Uh, one of the things that comes up in this class of game, uh, unlike a zero-sum game like chess or tic-tac-toe, restricting your your strategies can actually be beneficial for you in this game. So if the guy could sort of like contrive to leave a voicemail saying, I'm leaving for the ball game now, making it impossible for him to be at the opera, the gal now has a choice between going to the ball game with him or going to the opera by herself. Well, she prefers the former to the latter, so she'll do the former. And and by taking the the possibility that he'll go to the opera off the table, he now wins and, and gets his desired outcome. Yeah. Um, and of course, the same thing goes the other way. Uh, and of course, if they both decide to be selfish, they'll both wind up with the thing they want to go to, but no, no love. Um, The worst part about it, of course, is if they both decide to be generous, you get the gift of the Magi and they both wind up by themselves at the wrong place. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So, so then you're stuck with that. Um, Solid example. So what my sort of negotiation game approach would add to this would be uh, a like a, a program, you could imagine a phone app these days um, yeah. that would that would have one of the destinations, but uh, the players could pay money to the other player to switch the destination in increasing amounts. So let's say it was started at the opera, the guy could pay a dollar that the girl would get, yeah. and then they'd be going to the ball game, and then the gal could play two dollars if she wanted to which would functionally since she already got a dollar from the guy is functionally just giving him a dollar back to go to the opera instead at which point the guy could pay three dollars which functionally is now giving two dollars to her and so on and so if you if you did this then where they'd eventually wind up is that they'd be together at one of the two things but the, the sort of losing party would have been paid an amount of money by the winning party that would balance out sort of the amount that they don't like what, what they're doing um, to an even level that, that they, they're indifferent between this outcome and doing the thing that they want to do essentially. Um, and so this this in some sense would even out these two sort of conflicting outcomes and you'd wind up with the one that they really do want the most because if they wanted the other one the most then the other person would have been willing to pay that one extra dollar to to you know shift it um all right so so we we only have we only have a couple couple minutes here i just want to talk on your website Yes. You talk a lot, lot about trading. How, how did you how did you get into that? 
Well, so if you think about the battle of the sexes, um, buyers and sellers have exactly that relationship. They need to come together. If, if you mine or grow things or run a factory, you need the other side of that trade to stay in operation. Yeah. Um, uh, but at the same time, you'd really like more. <laughs> so, you know, if, if you grow wheat, you'd need to sell all your wheat, but you'd really like to sell all your wheat for more money if you could. And if you own, you know, the mill, you really need to buy wheat, but you really like to buy that wheat for less money if you could. Um, so it's that same relationship where there, there needs to be a coming together and a meeting in the middle type of thing. And it isn't necessarily the middle middle. It's just whichever middle is actually the one that leads to the entire relationship maxing out its value. And so if you take that approach to the marketplace, then you create a market that publishes and finds these market levels where not just you and I want to trade, but everyone that's growing wheat wants to trade the amount of wheat that everybody that's running mills wants to buy at one time. Yeah. And the entire system is looking for that price that meets all their needs simultaneously, which is what markets are, sort of do, um, except that this algorithm operates directly on the information. So it's a lot less expensive than current market overheads. And the results of and you getting into sort of like what's gotten me in, off the couch and working on this, the results of lowering market costs become amplified marginal improvements in economic returns, which directly leads to an increased rate of economic growth. Uh, and, and we're talking on the order of one or two percentage points. So going from like a 2% growing economy to like a three or a 4% growing economy, which is a dramatic wealth effect. Um, you could you could see general like wealth increasing fifty to one hundred percent. In fact, um, if you were to if you were to reduce these market costs by an order of magnitude, which is I, I, clearly doable, um, this algorithm is actually uh, considerably more right. more efficient than that. All right. So how do you how do you help people do that? Do, do you help individuals? Do you help businesses? What I'm working on right now is trying to find businesses to whom I can license the technology in order to offer that that broader um, uh, thing to individuals. The the regulatory expenses of setting up a marketplace are prohibitive. So I, I need to find people that uh, either have already done that or are fundraising in order to do that uh, to to get get the technology through them to to the public so that's that's where I am okay so the technology what what prob what problem is it solving is, is it making it so that people get the get the answer that they're looking for to make strategic trades um, so 
what it's doing is essentially removing the strategy from trading all in. Um, so what it's doing is it's clarifying and simplifying the process of forecasting where price is going gotcha. in order to create a more secure marketplace that, uh, so for people who are familiar with dark pools, this is essentially a bright pool. Um, so one of the things that, that has happened uh, is with the evolution of computers and so on and large players yeah. is large players don't really want to trade through the markets because the markets will become so volatile during their trading that it will cost them a lot of money as mm -hmm. the market shifts for their sort of big block of, of trades that occur. And so dark pools have evolved where companies will sort of take in these anonymized large blocks of supply and demand and then do some sort of mystical algorithm, uh, basically some sort of random sampling that you can trust them, that they're trustworthy, uh, to come up with what the price ought to be and, and sort of work through what your parameters were and get as many trades done as possible without moving the market price around. That That's called a dark pool for a reason, because of all this kind of murky stuff that has to happen. Yeah. What this does is it takes that kind of large uh, uh, grouped trade simultaneous at a fixed price and pairs it with a price discovery mechanism that can actually support it and be transparent. So you get to see what the price is going to be before you enter into the pool. You get to see how it happened and you can participate in, in moving it for future. But meanwhile, sort of today, this is the price, how much supply is there? How much demand is there? Bring them together, make the trades. And so all of that, if you think about sort of the supply and demand curve, meeting at a point that's in theory market cost sort of is a line below that point like we're we actually live somewhere below that point because the costs are part of what's going on so there's sort of a trapezoid top there what this does because it's more efficient is it gets closer to that point um because there aren't as many market costs and so it, it elevates things there and you you designed this Yep. That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. So one one last question, then, then we'll we'll bring it down. So what motivated you to, to make that? Like, did you start trading on your own and then just, just figure out there's got to be a better way? Well, like I said, I started out, I was playing around with this idea of whether or not there could be clear algorithms for consensus and, and drawing together information from a network. Yeah. Um, I found the negotiation game and figured out that it had the properties I was looking for. Uh, and then I was telling my friend, the one who the smart, but out there guy about him. <laughs> and uh, he asked me if I could predict the stock market with it. And I said, no, you can't. Cause you can't, you can't offer the network enough money to get it to tell you what you want to know. Mm. Um, but I was walking back to my house. We were next door neighbors at the time. So I was walking back to my house and it occurred to me that 
the market does pay for that information. So a marketplace would be able to pay for the information. And that was interesting because it was like, well, I have got this kind of single pass system where you can sort of gain information from a network. Could I make that recursive? So it reflected back on itself and it could pay for its own information. Is that even possible? So I spent like three months uh, solving that problem and coming up with an answer functions that would have the properties necessary to make that function. Um, and then once I'd done that work, I was analyzing what came out of it just to see, you know, what, what its properties were. And that's when I figured out that I was looking at something that was thousands of times more efficient than the existing markets. Um, so I, I went and did a bunch of historical research to see if like it had been tried before or if it had been thought of or any other problems that might exist. Couldn't find anything remotely like it. And, and at that point had learned a lot about the marketplaces and sort of what the economic consequences of markets versus non-markets and so on were. were. And that's when you start looking at the like, holy crap, you know, we could, we could really actually be talking about you know, doubling human wealth at the outside here. Um, that's, that's more important than anything else I could be working on. I got to work on that. Like that there, I, you know, I, I have to, I'm, I'm mathematically compelled <laughs> to work on this project <laughs> because um, there aren't any other more valuable projects to work on. <laughs> yeah. And that's a, that's a great goal. I was talking with uh, one of my clients slash friends earlier and he's he just got into investing i think he said like like a year ago investing trading and so he's talking to me about it a, a little bit and he was saying well i i would say too like the biggest the biggest thing that we could change that could better the country for the next generation is to teach the kids financial literacy it's like that's what's that's what's lacking and how to actually generate wealth instead of being bred through the school system to work a job to make the billionaires richer. <laughs> That's pretty much what it is. So I love, love the fact that you're doing that with a goal of, you know, increasing human wealth. Like that's a, that's a hell of a, hell of a mission, <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 It's, it's been quite compelling for a while now. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Well, I mean, you definitely have, have my, my support and, um, I can I can connect you with a couple of a uh, couple other podcast friends of mine if you want want to get on more shows to spread spread the word about what you're doing. Fantastic! Um, that's that's one of the one of the things I'm doing right now is is trying this out um, and and seeing where it goes and yeah I'd I'd uh, I'd love to. Awesome! Good! 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 All right, I'm gonna gonna put you backstage for a minute, but don't don't log out. Log out. Yes, want to um, talk to you for a couple minutes when we're when we're done off the air. But but again, thank you for joining, taking the time. And I said I learned a whole lot <laughs> in this last hour, so I appreciate that. And then uh, maybe I'll have you back on down down the line, check in with with you and see how you're doing. Okay. All right. Have a great day. You too. Thanks. Bye. All right. So that was Noah. If you're tuning in late, make sure you go back and listen to the entire episode because I got a whole lot out of that. And I'm sure you will as well. And you know, we finished up strong there talking about doubling 
tripling, quadrupling human wealth, if that doesn't at least give you a ding, yeah, I might want to listen to that. Right? So just make sure you check that out. So I'll be back tomorrow with another guest, another topic, another great show. So you guys have yourselves a great day. You've been listening to Shut Up and Grind. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. Robert has over 20 years experience pouring his knowledge and expertise at many events in the service and fitness industry, as well as secondary schools and universities. He has a true passion for helping others break through the barriers that are holding them back. To book Robert B. Foster to speak or to reach out, go to robertbfoster.com. Till next time, shut up and grind.